0: Okay, If we could dismiss the kids at this time, that would be great. Just chomping at the bit to go. Um, Just a few things as we get settled in. Lisa and I will be on vacation this coming week, um, so if there's any questions, concerns... or or issues, give the office a call, or one of the elders, if you have their number, that would be great, we can get you to the right person that you need, but we're going to just take a week to kind of enjoy the heat. For those of you who don't like it, we we like the heat, so there you have it. Um, Maybe just by way of explanation, I think we had a couple of things happen this morning in worship, I think it'd be good for those of you who... uh, aren't normally here, or if you are, we haven't seen that in a while, or perhaps in a couple months. We had uh, a message in tongues, and based upon what we've been learning, uh, Ashley, who spoke it, also interpreted it, which is actually the the best way to go, Paul tells us, is that if you're going to speak in tongues, um, it's best that you be prayerful that the Lord would give you the interpretation before you launch off with it, unless he frees you up to just Put that out there, because you get a sense that the Lord has somebody else to exercise their gift of interpretation. But being sensitive to the spirit, that's how we move. And uh, I am encouraged by Ashley, and I don't know who it was that spoke that word of I, I, it was encouragement through supplication, I guess is the best way to put it, that we lay before the Lord um, how short we fall in, in how it is we're trying to do, what He wants us to do. We recognize that, that we come up short and that we need Him. Um, that was another word that was spoken as well, I think, and I, I was encouraged by that. I think that it's a, it's a great, um, great way to, to go through worship, to hear those things and see how the Lord moves in that way. Um, I'm going to do my best to continue to talk so I don't have to tackle the text that I need to, uh, <laughs> but here we go. Um, why don't we stand? Then we'll go into prayer and then I will get into the message. What then, brothers and sisters? We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 26. We're going to read down to verse 40. What then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three, or two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let some interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church. See, Paul's real clear. We just need to go to where he tells us. And speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace As in all the churches of the saints, now please hold off to the end before you start throwing things, Uh, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only one it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. And yes, even this is God's word. You may be seated. Father, as we just gather before you this morning, I And thankful for the time in worship, for the ability to just see how the Holy Spirit moves. Prepare our hearts, Lord, for what you have for us next. Help us to have open ears and open hearts and open minds. You desire to have a complete Christian before you. And for for those who don't know who you are, who are here today, Lord, I just pray that you would open their hearts and their minds as well. And that we could walk through this text of Scripture in a way that brings glory to your name. And I hope clears some things up. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for, for being here amongst us, for walking with us. I pray for those in the body who continue to be sick and who are struggling with that. You know who they are, Lord. We lift them all up to you, and we pray that you would just minister to them. Thank you, Lord, for Jake and for Sarah and that little baby that is growing inside of her. I pray that you continue to encourage them as well, Lord as the day approaches when mom and dad get to see that little one. And we thank you, Lord. We pray that you continue to settle their hearts and their minds before your throne, and you would just encourage them for Zach and Melissa and for Molly as they continue their transition back here to Virgen's and here into this church. We thank you for them, uh, for new life, for Patty and Tadge's new grandson, Valerie and Chad, this week. We pray your blessing upon them, and that they just continue, Lord, to, to grow. Thank you, Father, for a wonderful day, for a beautiful, beautiful morning. Pray that you would open up the words that we have before us and that the name of Jesus will be glorified. In whose name I pray. Amen. Okay. So, if I haven't offended some of you yet, there's probably a good chance that before the day is over, I may very well do so. Um, that's not my intent. That's why we're going to walk through this as quickly and as slowly (laughs) as we can. So I've titled it What Then, Brothers and Sisters, because that's how Paul starts this section, and that's the direction that he takes off in this last part of the gifts uh, from chapter 12 through to chapter 14, and I really want to tackle it just two ways, because this is a text of Scripture, probably as much as any in all of the Bible, that really Gets people wound up, creates a lot of division, a lot of anxiousness, a lot of angry people. And frankly, it's one of the reasons why some people walk out of the church never to come back again and have this mindset that Paul is some knuckle-dragging Neanderthal who thinks that women should know their place. That couldn't be farther from the truth. I don't have all the time to tackle that today, but we will look at what we have. So I want to look at it two ways. I want us to take a look at three questions or issues, I think, that are brought up. And then I want to, just by way of prophecy, because I think we've talked a lot about tongues, and it's important that we really understand this, but by way of prophecy, seven things to test. What, what is a, a good prophecy and how it is we go about knowing that the Lord is using somebody in that gifting. Because the reality is, is we need the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. There's a lot of wackadoodle things in this world that have come about because somebody has taken a verse of Scripture off the page, parked it over here, and taken off down the road with it and said this is what it means within their own cultural context. Nothing can be more dangerous and more divisive within the church. Um, I'm thankful that the Lord took me in another direction last week so I could at least have one more week's pay before I tackled this particular sermon. <laughs> Unfortunately, He has not taken me down that road this week, so here we go. I want us to take a look at, as Paul closes this section on the gifts, he makes a statement, which instead of helping us to easily transition, and Pastor John and I have talked about this a lot, I hope he's been prayerful. (laughs) Instead of helping us make this very beautiful transition into chapter 15, which I think is the greatest discourse on the gospel and the resurrection that has ever been written in 2,000 years, instead of just taking us nicely in there, he drops a statement in the middle of this last passage that causes us to really pause and wonder if perhaps he you know, was confused, hit his head, or, or something else that was going on there. And, and this particular section of Scripture can be very complicated. It can be very frustrating. And I say that not to just make light of anything, because some people look at this and go, it's not complicated at all. You just do what it says, to which I would say to you, um, you're wrong. At least on the surface. So... It's very complicated and frustrating if we're honest in our attempt to really try and sort this out with just what Paul is saying here and how it is he's going about it. So as I said, I need you to be patient with me. I don't have a lot of wiggle room. Other people can have different opinions and that's great, but I'm up here trying to unpack with all of my study exactly what's going on here. So I think that, again, some of you will be quite encouraged when you leave. Others will be quite irritated and annoyed. And some of you might even be more confused than when we started. I hope that's not the case, but that could very well be. And my hope is that as we work through some cultural and societal perspectives, that's the biggest thing here, to the core of what it really means to be in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? So to tackle texts like this out of context of the entire Bible and the story of God and to use it as a standalone text to prove why it is we can subjugate women and keep them silent does a disservice to the overarching story of Scripture. So we need to be careful when we tackle something like this. It tends to speak more to the insecurities of the speaker who wants to fight that battle than it does to the actual text of Scripture. So when we come to a difficult text like this, as you can see, I'm moving slow. Hopefully, Jesus will take us back before we're done. That's really my job, to continue to talk as long as possible so we don't have to get there. But that's really not what we do here, is it? We've had to tackle tough te- texts like this before, so we're going to hit it head on. That's what we're going to do. We're going to try and walk through it and walk, walk it out as best as we can. Because I look at this passage and these comments about women just dropped in the middle of this passage at Paul's attempt to clarify how the gifts are used within the service and it causes me to struggle. Now I've been a Christian for almost 32 years now and it causes me to struggle. So what I came up with, as I said, was three things that we're going to try and work our way through in relation to that particular text and then we're going to take a look at those seven things about prophecy. Number one, that it doesn't seem to fit here with all the things that Paul's addressing. You can very easily remove this, and perhaps this is just my brains, but you can very easily remove uh, verses 33b right down through 35 out of this and read this chapter, and it would flow actually better than it does with those verses there, but it's there, so we have to deal with it. And number two, it directly contradicts chapter 11 and verses 1 through 6. Directly contradicts it. That's why we started in our first reading in chapter 11, verses 1 through 12, because it directly contradicts it there. And then third, we're going to take a look at the fact that it also contradicts other comments that Paul makes with regard to women in his other writings, the other letters that we have in the Scriptures. So we have to ask ourselves, are we misunderstanding what Paul is trying to teach us? Or is it not really what Paul is saying, even though it seems pretty clear that that's what he's saying? So do you see the problem? So off we go. The first, number one, that it doesn't seem to fit with what Paul is addressing here. At least on the surface, it doesn't seem to. He's already made it quite clear in chapter 11 that women are to speak in church and that they do speak in church when he addresses the notion of how they're to go about doing it. In verse 5 of chapter 11, we read this. But every woman or wife, depending upon your translation, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So he's trying to give some context on how she's supposed to speak within the church. So we have that problem. It doesn't seem to fit because he instantly says that she should be quiet just after he got through telling her, if you're going to speak, do it a certain way. He wouldn't make a statement like that if women weren't already speaking within the context of church and within the context of the Sunday gathering and within the context of the use of gifts. And here in chapter 11, we have to remember something that we tend to slide by because we, we just move too quick. We have to see that what Paul is doing here is he is establishing order. Except this time, he's not establishing order within the service, he's establishing good created order. In other words, how it is we are to function in the hierarchy of the spiritual realm. But I want you to understand in verse 3, Paul says, let's look at that, that the head of every man is who? Christ. That the head of a wife is who? Her husband. And that the head of Christ is God. Now, do we ever look at that and go, that's weird, that the head of Christ is God? Aren't we Trinitarian people? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three separate and distinct, and yet all equal and the same? How is it then that Paul is saying here that even Christ is in submission to God? He's trying to show us something here. Because they are equal by way of spiritual. The triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But in purpose and in function... In purpose and in function as the Son, Jesus, the man, understood that in the good created order of things, that God the Father was the head. And that Jesus himself, if he was going to operate in the good created order, based upon Genesis 1 and 2, how it's supposed to be, he would put himself in submission to somebody that he was equal to. Now keep that train of thought. Because that's the direction I believe that Paul is going here. He's trying to establish a creation pattern where sin doesn't exist. That's why we have to know who we are in Christ. Even Jesus submitted to the headship of God the Father. And where is this best seen in this world? Well, Paul explains it to us in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3. The best way to see how this works itself out is in the context of marriage context of marriage, a husband and a wife. What Paul is doing at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is he is defining good gender roles within creation and within new creation. Now that sin no longer has hold over us, we have the capacity and the ability to walk the way we're supposed to. Everybody with me so far? Okay. All right. So he's defining those gender roles so that we can understand who we are In Christ, with the reference point of Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. So, what did it look like before the fall? We've talked about this before, so I don't want to spend too much time. But Adam and Eve were in perfect unity then. There was no discord between the two of them when there was no sin. God the Father walked with them in the cool of the day. They were naked and they were unashamed, and all of those things. There was no Eve looking at Adam going, what a dunderhead he didn't shave this morning and pick up his socks. And Adam wasn't looking at Eve thinking maybe she ought to do a few more crunches after the oatmeal in the morning. There was none of that. And I'm not making light of that, but that is how the world thinks. Think for a moment how we feel in relation to our spouses, in our insecurities. Does that come from good created order or does that come from fall mentality and the brokenness of this world? It challenge you to think it through. It comes from the brokenness of this world. It doesn't come from the good created order. Paul is trying to bring us back to where we're supposed to be. Perfect in Christ. Equal in Christ. That's what he's mapping out for us here. Thus, in the new creation order, men, men and women, husbands and wives, are equal in Christ, yet they still have defined gender roles within that. In other words, when push comes to shove and the end of all things happen, who had to take full responsibility for the fall? Was it Eve? No, it was Adam. Why? Established gender roles. Without sin, they were equal. They were perfectly equal. She was his strength and his weakness. That's why she was created. Because a man was only half a man, and he didn't have everything he needed. So along comes Eve to fill in the gaps. But ultimately, when it hits the fan, who is responsible to bring answer for the family? Adam. Paul is trying to establish that. And he's also trying to get us to the point, if he takes the time to establish that, why does he all of a sudden seem to contradict himself? Well, the reality is, is the answer is, is he doesn't. This isn't on your screen, but I just want to read this to you. Verses 11 and 12 in chapter 11. I said it in the opening. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. The statement that's being made there is that you are now equal in Christ. We don't operate with the fall mentality where we subjugate women because we think that that's what we're supposed to do. So as we come to this section on process, on what the gifts look like, on how it is we order the use of the gifts within service, there's certain things which are okay, and there's certain things which are not okay. That's really what Paul's saying. That's the problem with the Corinthian church. If you have the list of all the things that are okay here, and all the things of the list of, that are not okay here, where do you think the Corinthian church lined up for the party? Right here, pretty much every time. They were doing everything that wasn't okay. Their heart was in the right place, but the brains weren't. That's not an insult. They they were fighting in a worldly way to get their own way. Now, from a cultural perspective, and it's awful quiet in here, so I'm a little uncomfortable. (laughs) From a cultural perspective, the reality is that women have been subjugated by men for pretty much most of human history. You've played second fiddle. You've walked three steps behind and two to the left pretty much since the dawn of time. That is a part of fall. And as a result, women, and rightly so, push back. They push back. Now, what we have going on here is that sometimes they push back as inappropriately as the men who seek to keep them where they are push them down. So we have that going on here, most especially within culture and within society, where women now all of a sudden in the Corinthian church and elsewhere in all of the churches, women are completely free in Christ and equal to men and have never had that before. So they're trying to figure out how this works. And as with every other human being, we all make a little mistake. We get out of control every once in a while, but we need to understand culture and society as well. Culture and society, I'll come back to that in a couple minutes, I think. Corinth is dealing with this very issue. They're wrestling through how women who are now allowed within the context of full worship, not behind some dividing wall. For those of you who don't know, it used to be men would go into synagogue and they'd sit right up in the front where the rabbi was and then there was this dividing wall with lattice work. Women could go up to that wall, but they could not go into the actual worship center as it were. They had to stay in the back. Okay, That's how it worked. It's not how it's working anymore in the church. Now the women, as opposed to being second-class non-citizens, are now full citizens. Why? Because in Christ, you're equal. So now they're within the service, but still separated because, you know, we men are a little bit slow on the uptake. The men are still up front and the women are in the back. Just because that's a cultural thing that was going on. Men and women just didn't sit together. Whether it's right or wrong, we can have that conversation, but that's how it worked. So when you tackle that, they're dealing with all of this, and they're now actually in the room with men. They found themselves overstepping the bounds of proper behavior. And it seems, according to what we have in chapter 11 and chapter 14 here, that they were disrupting the service because of this behavior. Now, before people start throwing stuff at me, that doesn't mean that men weren't misbehaving. Okay, they probably were, and in fact, if you read the letter, they definitely were. But for this particular moment in time, what Paul is addressing is an issue. Remember, he's answering questions. He's trying to clarify for them how things work. So at this particular moment in time, it's pretty clear that it's the ladies who are overstepping their bounds. Not because they're intentionally just trying to blow up the whole show, but because how do I operate in this newfound freedom? I have yet to find a commentator who doesn't agree with that. No matter what side of the coin you fall on, every one of them agree with the fact that they were being disruptive in the service. So what we really need to understand here, and this is key, and I think I have a slide for this, context is everything. Context is everything if we are going to properly understand if this statement here that Paul is making is a timeless truth or a timely piece of advice. I'll say that again. Whether this is a timeless truth or a timely piece of advice, we have to sort that out. Otherwise, we're going to get all pear shaped going forward. And I don't want that. I do the best I can to walk through this. Is Paul telling us, as so many men like to think, that women should be seen and not heard, much like the children? Or is he addressing a specific issue of disorder and chaos? My firm belief in all of my study is the latter, that he is addressing a specific issue of disorder and chaos. Now look around you here for a minute. How are you sitting? Men, women together, if we had little kids in here, the kids would be together, right? This is not what Paul would have seen when he walked into a service. My wife would not be right there. She would be back there. And all you men who like to hang out in the back, guess what? You all be up here. That's how it would look for Paul. But here, in our culture, in our society, men, women, children, different races, different ethnicities, different everything, all gather together in one room. But that's not how it was in Paul's day. The church in its infancy was struggling through how to make these things work. And again, much like traditional synagogues set up, men and women always sat differently. So what then happens when a woman has a question and she's got newfound freedom and she really understands that in Christ she's equal to her husband? What happens? Well, I suspect, especially in the midst of prophecies breaking out that are being spoken in tongues which are simply out of control in a church that's in confusion, how many of you would have a question regarding everything that's going on? Uh Uh-huh. Who would you ask? Your spouse. Well, what if he's down front? You'd holler. For starters, Paul's going to bring order to the overarching chaos that has been ensuing in Corinth. What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three. See, we have good rules. We just don't pay attention to them. We either shut it all down, or we just go wacky. It's all right here. But if there's no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the other way in what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace." Paul is not hard to understand if we actually read Paul instead of making our assumptions about Paul. So you got Mrs. Jones who doesn't like the prophetic word. Or she gets what it means, so she hollers from the back to Mr. Jones, "Um, Excuse me, honey. In the midst of all of the already crazy chaos, she needs an answer to what's going on, causing a whole lot more noise and a whole lot more confusion and a whole lot more disruption. And again, it's not to say that men weren't the problem. We've been the problem from the get-go. Frankly, if we think for a minute, we probably don't need to be told that. We just know that. But anyway, we we need to understand that within this context and time, what Paul is addressing is that it was women in their newfound freedom in Christ who were struggling to figure out how to make this work. That's what it was. And in good created order, in chapter 11, Paul is saying, look, at this, this is how it works. By all means, ask your husband. In fact, because you are free in Christ, you now have that ability to be equal with him. Whereas before, you were just another piece of property who did what she was told. So you see there, and again, if you dig a little deeper, you see Paul reemphasizing the freedom that women get in Christ. And we can't miss that. And that's why we have to read this right. So Paul, again, in the framework of created order, is continually trying to establish healthy gender roles. Distinct, yet completely equal. Anybody with a modicum of sense can look at my wife and look at me and understand that we are two different genders. And that there are certain things that she can do and certain things that I can do that the other can't. I don't care what science tries to work it through. It's just the way it rolls. Now, I don't have anything else for that, so we'll move on before I get in bigger trouble. But we have to understand that there are gender roles, distinct but equal. Distinct but equal. If you want to talk to or ask your husband or your spouse or even question him, and that's critical to remember, you have the capacity to do that. Especially about what's happening in service and why. But there is a right way to go about doing that. And shouting in the sanctuary ain't the right way. That's what Paul's saying. There's no way at all in all of my studies that we can make Paul say in a timeless truth manner that the minute every one of you women walk in that door, you zip it and say nothing else until you leave. There is no way that we can make that case from the text of Scripture ever. It's made on a regular basis, but there is no way that that can be made. It can't be. Because you got Paul seemingly contradicting himself, which is number two, but that conflicts with chapter 11. Number three, what we have is elsewhere in his writings, he would be contradicting himself. Women clearly can and they do speak within the context of service. And not only that, they lead and they function equally with men within the gifts. You take just a minute, and I leave this with you. Romans chapter 16 is one of the best examples. Paul lists no less, Romans chapter 16, no less than nine women. No less than nine, possibly ten, depending on how you interpret one of the names. But there is no less than nine women in that list to whom he gives thanks to, who have worked with him in the ministry and in the church, contending with him side by side for the faith. So we are either misunderstanding Paul in texts like this, or he is absolutely hypocritical and I'm not going down that road. I have to be inclined to believe that I somehow am misunderstanding or we got to dig deeper to understand the context of culture and society. We have to be careful not to allow that, not to allow the cultural and the societal dictates or even, as men, a preferred and beneficial reading for us as we see a text like this. Now, if that unsettles some of you guys, good. Because we impose upon the truths of Scripture societal order and cultural order. In other words, what makes a good submissive wife? That she makes my dinner? That she folds my clothes and picks up my dirty socks next to the bed? That she does what she's told? Is that what makes a good wife? I defy you to find it in Scripture. And I'm not being cocky here. I just defy you to find it in Scripture. What we have done is we have taken cultural understandings and societal understandings and we have read them into the text of Scripture. And then we say, oh, this is what makes a good biblical wife." Really? Now, I leave that with you to sort out because I have my own issues I have to walk through with this. But we need to be careful not to read cultural and societal dictates into the text of Scripture. In other words, we use this as an excuse to keep women, especially our wives, in a position which God, in and through Christ, in his good created order, never intended women to be. And that's why we need the overarching narrative of all the scripture. When Paul says it wasn't that way in the beginning, don't skip over that. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and ask yourself, what did it look like in the beginning? before sin entered the world. And these texts will make much more sense. Craig Bloomberg in his commentary on 1 Corinthians says this, Equally implausible is the older, extremely conservative perspective that verses 34 and 35 are absolute commands, silencing women in every way during the Corinthian worship service. This view has to assume that chapter 11 and verse 5 was in fact not implying Paul's approval of women praying and prophesying in public, But surely, if that were the case, he would have had to say so. Or else, one has to assume without any contextual support that the two different kinds of Christian assemblies are in view in these two passages, with no support. Or, if one has an extremely low view of Paul, meaning you don't really take everything he says seriously, and not only is uninspired, but also is unable to remember what he has recently written One can simply admit a contradiction. In other words, Paul's just lost his marbles. He's just saying one thing out of one side of his mouth and one thing out of the other. But these approaches, this man says, surely reflect last-ditch resorts to support a highly chauvinistic interpretation of 14, 34, and 35. As controversial as this is, we have to look at what's really going on. Paul is addressing women in this specific setting for being quite loud, disruptive, and non-submissive to the standard order of service. Can't get around that either. That's a timely application. Cultural and situational, it's a timely application. Not a timeless truth. In other words, these verses don't stand forever. In the sense that the minute you ladies walk in, you zip it. Not only would we lose half our worship team, we would lose one of the most gifted people we have in this church. I don't find that biblical. But that's for another time, because I'm running out of time. Women are as gifted as men, and frankly, sometimes more so. It is our duty to draw out the best of them. In order that they can be all that they are supposed to be in Christ Women are also called to use their gifts in the context of worship, be it prophecy, be it tongues, interpretation, encouragement, mercy, giving, exhortation, grace, all of these things. To say no is really to misunderstand Paul, and I know that that flies in the face of people who are probably far more educated and smarter than I am, but this is where I land. Both feet square on the ground, and it is what it is. But there is to be order. Order. That's Paul's contention. There is to be order about these things, but all things should be done decently and in order. I I don't need to expand on that for you. I think that you're all sensible people. That's verse 40. If you have questions, good. Good. Ask them quietly. Whisper in your spouse's ear. Ask them in the car. Wrestle it around at table when you sit down for dinner or at home. You see, every single one of us in here will respond the same way if disruptions like that were constantly happening in this congregation. Whether you're men or you're women, you would all respond the same way. It's confusing. It makes no sense. It's rude. It's disrespectful. We'd all do that. Why? Because I think in any cultural, societal setting, when we have a gathering like this and people are just shouting across the room at each other on a regular basis, it's really not appropriate behavior in any setting. But it happens on a regular basis. We have to be careful. So that's Paul's challenge. Do things properly in order. Spend all that time on that because I know that that is a text of Scripture that a lot of people struggle over and that a lot of people stand on in a particular way. I'm not looking to change your mind. I'm just looking to lay out what my studies show me. And please don't look to change my mind because Inga. ain't gonna. Now, by way of prophecy because this is important as well. This is where we're going to close, and I've got a few minutes, so we're going to try and land this plane. Michael Green gives seven very helpful things regarding how we can know prophetic words are God-given. And I want to have a comment on each of these, and then we'll close. It shouldn't take me more than a few minutes, but we all know that that's... Anyway, uh, number one. I have them on the screen, so we're going to go through these a little slowly. Number one, does it glorify God? I know that that seems, well, duh... But you would have a lot of shocked expressions on your face if you were in some places. There are some prophecies that come out of places that I've heard and been that bring no glory to God. They bring a lot of glory to the person spouting off. To the church in which they are spouting off about. To the denomination to which they belong. God has since left the building when they're just spouting off all of these things. The first question to ask is, does it glorify God? Okay? Number two... Does it accord with Scripture? I am always very weary of somebody who comes up to me and says, I've got a word directly from the Lord for you, brother, and they don't have a Bible on them. I'm not being flippant. But it really concerns me unless they have got a proven prophetic gifting, i.e., over time it has shown itself to be accurate. I am always quite weary when somebody comes up and says, I've got a word for you, and it doesn't line up with Scripture. More often than not, prophetic words are drawn directly out of Scripture. Why? For the next one, does it build up the church? If you've got brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so standing up and doing everything they can to rip hook, rafter, and everything apart as we destroy the church in the midst of the service... I'm not so sure that comes from the Lord. Now, that does not mean that we don't get a loving rebuke from a father who loves us and we're not in the spot we're supposed to be. Because he can build up the church by challenging the church to do better than they're doing. So be sensitive. Be sensitive to that. Does it glorify God? Does it accord with scripture? Does it build up the church? Number four, is it spoken in love? This seems to be a no-brainer. Especially given chapter 13 that we spent all kinds of time on. Everything is love. Remember, faith, hope, and love. Love is eternal. Is it spoken in love, or do we have brother so-and-so who's ticked off at Johnny come lately because he didn't pay him for the muffler replacement, and some prophetic word for the whole body to know about this comes out, and there's no love anywhere in the building? And, And you laugh, but I'm drawing from experiences, so... Number five, does the speaker submit him or herself to the judgment and consensus of others in spiritual humility? In other words, when a prophet is going to speak and they believe they have a word for the body and they know that it's coming, verse 29, let the others weigh what is said. Most commentaries will tell you that what Paul is saying there is the leadership and the pastors and elders over that particular body. Go to them. When does this fit? How does it apply? Nine out of ten times, the pastor or the elders aren't going to look at you and go, sit down. No, they're going to tell you, okay, let's find out where this fits in a good and orderly way within the context of service. If someone is not willing to submit him or herself to the judgment and consensus of others and spiritual humility, we have to ask ourselves two things. Are they in need of some help? by way of growing in spiritual maturity because that's a possibility or are they just plain and simple obstinate and wanting to do their own thing we have to exercise discernment in that because it could be one or the other we had a lady that used to speak in tongues on a regular basis and never interpreted just tossed it out had to sit down with her and say listen sister you are definitely gifted in speaking in tongues there's no doubt about that but have you ever prayed that the Lord would help you interpret well no I haven't. Okay. Well, we want to help you grow in maturity in that. So when the Lord gives you a word from now on, I want you to be praying that he would walk you through that interpretation before you just shout it out. Discipleship. Understand where people are coming from. They submitted right to that and were great with that, and the Lord started giving them interpretation. See, number six, is the speaker in control of him or herself? That's a good one. I go down to Middlebury College and the students look at me and go, how come your church doesn't look like that? Well, because that's crazy rolling around on the floor, howling and yelling and just running around the church like someone's chasing you, is the speaker in control of him or herself? We have to make sure of that. Okay? If they tell you that they have no control, they just have to say it, tell them that they are in defiance of God's direct command through the Apostle Paul. I, we do that in a loving way, but that's not the way it works. As the worship team comes up, I give you number seven. Is there a reasonable amount of instruction or does the message seem excessive in detail? Is there a reasonable amount of instruction or does the message seem excessive in detail? I think that's pretty self explanatory. Somebody rambles on for 15 minutes and you're looking at your watch wondering when dinner's going to be, much like some of you are now because I've gone over my time, and you have no idea what was said at the end. We have to ask ourselves, okay, let's test this, Lord. Test this. Is this from you? I think that those are all very good things. I think that it helps us. And I leave you with this thought, as, again, as the worship team just gets themselves ready here. because we're going to close out this series and we're going to go into Habakkuk for the next six or eight weeks. When it comes to the gifts, we've learned this, that God operates the way he wants, when he wants, how he wants. But at the same time, he does so in a fitting and orderly way. And usually, and I think that most people will attest to this, we tend to get a sense that he wants to use somebody before he actually is going to use them. Why? Because God likes to do things in a fitting and orderly way. Sometimes it just happens. We have to give room for that. That's what makes us all a little unstable. And then, lastly, I want to leave you with this. As you go home, I would challenge you to pray. Ask the Lord, how do you want to use me? In what capacity have you gifted me? See, some people are gifted in a specific thing for a specific purpose. Mine is preaching and teaching. That's the gift I have. I don't have many other gifts. That's why I tell you I'm not useful for much of anything else. And I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. I just know what my giftings are. But what has God designed you for? Have you asked Him? Have you earnestly sought Him? Have you said, Father, what have you wired me for? And please begin to use me. And challenge me to go to somebody to help me grow in that. Because we aren't meant to be alone, right? We're meant to grow together as a body, as a community. We're better together even though we mature individually and then get together as a body. I would challenge you with that as we close in this last song. Can we please stand? Father, I don't have much else to say, but if the prayer teams could just take their spots, I would appreciate that. Father, I lift up everybody here. I lift them up into your good care, to your faithfulness, to your truthfulness and in your love, Lord. Speak to our hearts. If we need prayer, embolden us to step out. If we need to come to you with questions and issues and we're wrestling through things, embolden us to step out. Help us to see exactly who we are in Christ that you have made us exactly the way you want us to and help us to step into that. Conform us to the likeness of your Son. In Jesus' name. Amen. Draw me close to you day for a little bit more worship i pray that you would just continue to speak to our hearts that you would conform us to the likeness of your son father that you would remind us that each and every one of us have been uniquely created in your image to fulfill the role that you have for us to do the things that you had planned before we were even born help us to operate in that grace help us to operate in the gifts that you have given to each one of us We are no better or no worse than the person standing next to us. We are who you've made us to be. And if we would all step into those roles, glorifying you, lifting up the name of Jesus, the church then begins to move in that healthy way that is focused upon you, that is focused upon reaching the lost, about sharing who Jesus is, and being a complete human being because of what Christ has done for us on the cross bring that to our memory this week lord as we seek to reach out into this world in jesus name amen you are dismissed draw me close to you